The Literate Caveman, Episode 7, The Logic of Failure. Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with, as well as addressing the topics of mindset in general. I'm your host, Chad Blake, and today we are going to continue our review of The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. In our last episode, we introduced The Logic of Failure and discussed some of the research Dietrich Dorner conducted at the University of Bamberg in Germany. After the introduction of the book, Dorner moves on to lay out some of the principles he and his team identified during his research period. He opens the first chapter with a description of Tanaland, a fictional region in West Africa populated by the Tupis and the Moro people. He explains that during this experiment, 12 participants were given dictatorial powers. They were able to carry out any measures they liked without opposition. Please keep in mind, this was an experiment conducted with an advanced computer program. They were not actually in charge of real people. In the computer simulation, the participants were tasked with promoting the well-being of Tanaland's inhabitants and of the surrounding region. Some examples of the many subjects the participants could pursue were things such as establish hunting regulations, making improvements to agriculture, establish irrigation systems, improve the infrastructure, modernize agrarian efforts with tractors and similar mechanical time-saving tools. We could continue with a very long list. These are just some of the examples of options from the text. You can imagine for yourself if you had the opportunity to manage a region in a third world country with unlimited resources what the possibilities could be. Now, like any good experiment, the Tanaland experiment had specific protocols that were followed. The computer program was set to replicate a 10-year timeline for the population of Tanaland. I'm not sure how long the actual experiment lasted in real time, but the author does make clear in the text that the simulation was intended to predict the impact of the participants' decisions over a 10-year period. They were given six opportunities that the participants scheduled at intervals of their own choosing to gather information, make plans, and implement those plans. They were allowed to implement as many measures as they cared to. And at each of the planning sessions, they were given opportunity to evaluate what went well and what could be improved. And if they wished, to evaluate and make changes to their previous decisions for the remainder of the experiment. Initially, the results looked good. Life expectancy improved, infant mortality declined. It seems most of the decisions made by the participants impacted the agrarian tupis more than the nomadic moro. The author explains that within the first three sessions of the six allotted, most of the participants were optimistic and believed they had solved Tanalan's problems. The author describes this situation as a ticking time bomb that took the participants by a complete surprise. Famine was the result. As the author puts it, the old pattern had repeated itself. Existing problems had been solved without thought for the repercussions and the new problems the solutions would create. Several factors led to the catastrophe. One of the challenges in the simulation was that mice, rats, and monkeys fed on the crops. Reducing the numbers of these animals seemed like an obvious step towards improving the annual yield. But what new challenges would arise from addressing this problem? 
As the animals in question were removed, it created an increase in the small insects that were also part of the animal's diet. Another result was the large predatory cats in the area began feeding on livestock when they were deprived of the smaller animals that formed part of their diet. Quoting from the text, Dorner says, Failure to anticipate side effects and long-term repercussions of this kind was one reason for the failures that most of our participants produced in Tanaland. In addition to challenges in considering repercussions of decisions, the author details the frequency in which participants, one, made decisions, two, reflected on the overall simulation, and three, asked questions. Dorner and his team used the six sessions with the participants to track the thinking out loud that the participants did. They tracked what he calls the orientation activities, questioning and reflection, decisions, and what they call other categories. What they found was most of the participants fell into similar patterns. At the first session, questioning and reflecting was a dominant activity. He says this accounted for 56% of recorded activity. Decisions accounted for 30%. What they called other only compromised 14% of recorded activities. He says that over the course of the remaining five sessions, the average participant became less hesitant and far more decisive. They seemed to feel like their initial questioning and reflection were adequate. And there was no need to assess their decisions or reflect on the results. Another trend shared by the average participant was their sessions became progressively shorter. Quoting from the text, the participants established their modus operandi for Tanaland in the first few sessions and did not alter it much later. He advises that more thinking and less action would have been a more successful strategy. One of the trends that occurred in the average participant was a tendency to unconsciously redefine the problems of the situation. Another way to look at this, from what I can gather reading the text, is the focus of some of the participants changed from solving Tanaland's problems and thus improving the lives of the population to a steadfast determination to see their initial ideas carried through, regardless of new challenges caused by these decisions. In other words, the focus shifted unconsciously from the assigned task, improve the lives of the fictional population, to whatever pet project the participant had selected. He gives a few examples of how participants reacted when told that famine was harming the population. These reactions range from outright dismissing the result to making comments that may or may not have been intended as jokes. The author points out that while it is tempting to say comments such as everyone has to die sometime or it's mostly the old and weak who are dying and that's good for the population structure are intended as wisecracks within the context of an electronically simulated population. He points out that the parallels to events in the real world were so apparent to him and his team that they felt it was crucial to study these conditions further. He points out an interesting concept. Helplessness generates cynicism. From here, he describes a couple of different reactions participants had to the Tanaland experiment. Some, he explains, reacted with helplessness and a desire to be done with the entire situation but others enjoyed the feeling of power they got from having dictatorial power, even in the limited context of a simulation. After explaining all this, the author clarifies that since the Tanaland experiment only had 12 participants, it was not a large enough sample size to draw any broad conclusions. 
He does believe that it suggested ways that thinking, value systems, and emotions interact in decision-making. He points out again that to him and his team, this simulation had obvious parallels to real-world events. Some commonalities he observed between his test subjects and real-world events were 1. Acting without prior analysis of the situation 2. Failing to anticipate side effects and long-term repercussions 3. Assuming that the absence of immediately obvious negative effects meant that correct measures had been taken 4. That over-involvement in projects blinded them to emerging needs and changes in the situation and 5 were prone to cynical reactions. He concludes this section of the book by saying that because the game had shown such a close resemblance to reality, his team was interested in examining the underlying causes of those behaviors. In the next section of the book, he moves on to another simulation. This one is a fictional place called Greenville. He describes it as a small town of 3,700 inhabitants located in a hilly region of northwest England. A city-owned watch factory is Greenville's major employer. He worked on a larger scale with Greenville than Tanaland, making a total of 48 different people the mayor of Greenville. Similar to the Tanaland experiment, and he emphasizes this is unrealistic, the mayor of Greenville was given nearly dictatorial power for 10 years, during which time the citizens would have no opportunity to vote the mayor out of office. Also, because the region's major employer the city-owned watch factory, was under the mayor's control, the participants in this study had far more control over the simulated population than a real mayor would have, at least in the Western world. Dorner emphasizes that the reason they gave the test subjects such unrealistic powers over Greenville was not to create the ideal conditions for the participants' success, but to elicit from the participants as many modes of behavior as possible. Quoting from the text, he says, by removing the constraints of the real world, we hope to see how people think and act when they are entirely free to do as they wish. End quote. Leading into his discussion of the Greenville experiment, Dorner provides some detail about two of the participants, one who performed very poorly, with unemployment and a lack of available housing going up, and satisfaction, capital, and production all going down. The other participant he discusses had opposite results. Unemployment stayed close to zero, capital rose, satisfaction increased, and except in the very beginning, housing was stable. Dorner pulls back from the details of the experiment at this point to emphasize that his interest in these experiments was not so much the end result, but the process, the psychology, characteristics of thought, decision-making, planning, and hypothesizing. When analyzed, Dormer says very clear differences in the patterns between the people who did well and the people who had less desirable outcomes. The first obvious difference, he tells us, is that the good participants made more decisions than the bad participants. One difference between the Tanaland experiment and the Greenville experiment is during the Greenville event, participants got two more sessions, totaling eight, to plan, evaluate, ask questions, and so forth. Apparently, during the first four sessions, all the participants increasingly made more decisions. Although, he does note that the successful participants made significantly more decisions than the average and the poor performers. Then something changed. After the fourth session, the gap widened between the good participants making more and more decisions, and the bad participants making less. 
He makes the interesting comment that somehow the good participants found more possibilities for influencing Greenvale's fate. Quoting from the text, he reminds us that Greenvale is a complex system of interlocking economic, ecological, and political components. It is impossible to do just one thing alone. Any action in one area affects others. That is a strong quote that has implications in other areas, not just the managing of a municipal region. You can apply that to health and fitness, running a business, probably even to a relationship. Life is complex, and even simple decisions and actions can have a cascade effect. An interesting example the author uses is raising taxes. He points out that taxes might be raised on a specific segment of the population with the intent of raising revenue, but it can have the effect of alienating the affected group and causing them to move elsewhere. This book was published in 1997, but this makes me think of the recent migration from California that has happened over the last few years. Obviously, taxes are not the only issue there. Rising crime, overall cost of living, and other things are at play. But again, life is complex, and many things are interrelated. Moving on, Dorno goes on to say that in this example, the effect can be a decrease in tax revenue instead of an increase. He emphasizes that we must consider not just the primary goal of any given decision, but try to consider the potential cascade effects as well. During the Greenville experiment, they tracked the ratio of intentions, purposes, and goals to individual decisions, and they found that the good participants made significantly more decisions than the bad. Using the tax example, he reports that a bad participant generally only made one decision towards the goal of increasing tax revenues, raise taxes. A good participant, on the other hand, might make as many as three decisions. In this case, increasing the number of jobs, invest in product development. Remember, in this simulation, the city owned the watch factory, the major employer of the region, and advertise. Quoting from the text, the good participants acted more complexly. Their decisions took different aspects of the entire system into account, not just one aspect. This is clearly the more appropriate behavior in dealing with complicated systems. An interesting observation is that all the participants apparently hypothesized about how their decisions would impact the outcome of the Greenville experiment with similar frequency, but a stark difference was discovered. The participants with more successful outcomes tested their theories with more frequency. The participants with less desirable, we might even say disastrous outcomes, seemed, as Dorner puts it, to believe that proposing a hypothesis was to understand reality. Instead of generating theories, he says they generated what they believed to be truths. He tells us that the successful participants asked more why questions, as opposed to what questions. The successful participants naturally were inclined to be more interested in the casual links behind events, while the less successful ones tended to make events at face value and to regard them as unrelated. He tells us that a consistent trend between the participants who did well and the ones who did poorly was the bad mayors had a strong tendency to change the subject when challenges or bad news was brought up. The good mayors were more likely to ask insightful questions and try to understand the root cause of issues. Bad participants, he says, were all too willing to be distracted. At this point in the text, Dorner introduces what he calls innovation and stability indices. Before I get into the differences he lays out between innovation and stability, and how they impact decision-making and outcomes, I want to point out 
that Dorner cautions these two traits do not have a strictly inverse relationship, meaning that it is not the case that if one is high, the other has to be low. Sometimes, someone can be both innovative and stable, or they can lack innovation and stability, or, as we shall see shortly, there can be a mix of the two. For the purposes of the Greenville experiment, the innovation index indicates the degree to which the decisions made in one session deviate from those of the previous session. He tells us that if a participant reaches decisions that differ from the ones he made in the previous session, the innovation index is high, even if the focus was still on the same set of challenges. If, however, the decisions resemble earlier ones, the innovation index is low. As far as the stability index, it rates high if the participant operates consistently within the same range of topics. The stability index is low if from one session to another, a completely different set of topics is the focus. Now, it might be tempting to think that if both traits are high, we will get the best results. People naturally think of a trait being high as good and a trait being low as bad. But what they found during the Greenville experiment was the mayors who had the best outcomes had lower innovation indexes and higher stability indexes. Dorner feels that this, due to the fact that the data showed these behaviors correlated with consistently better outcomes, shows the good participants focus their energies on the right fields of endeavor. And, he says, they continued to do this over time. Interestingly, for the bad participants, they also noticed both aimless switching around from one focus to another and the opposite behavior of being preoccupied with one project to the exclusion of everything else. One of the problems they observed with focusing too much on a narrow range of issues is it takes time that is not then available for other issues. Another interesting difference between the good and bad mayors was in how they organized their thoughts during the sessions. Good participants were more likely to reflect on their behavior, comment critically on it, and make efforts to improve while bad participants were more likely to summarize their own behaviors and decisions, without making adjustments. The less successful mayors were also far more likely to shift the blame of their failures onto other people. Interestingly, Donor emphasizes again that while there were similarities between the good mayors and the bad mayors, the range of behaviors varied greatly, especially amongst the poor performers. One might be tempted to think the psychological tests would be helpful in determining who would perform well versus poorly. But he says this is not the case. He insists there is no correlation between scores on IQ tests and performance in the Greenville experiment or other complicated problem-solving experiments. Quoting from the text, the author tells us, It seems likely that the capacity to tolerate uncertainty has something to do with how our participants behaved. When someone simply walks away from difficult problems, or solves them by delegating them to others, when someone is all too ready to let new information distract them from the problem they are working on at the moment, when someone solves the problems they can solve rather than the ones they should solve, when someone is reluctant to reflect on their actions, it is hard not to see in such behavior a refusal to recognize one's impotence and helplessness and a tendency to seek refuge in certainty and security, end quote. At this point in the text, the author addresses the question of how relevant his research is to real-world events. He asks the question, 
If this computer simulation bears any resemblance to actual behavior tendencies in situations that are characterized by uncertainty, complexity, and lack of clarity, or are they situation-specific, a function of a participant interacting with the computer program? To explore this line of questioning, he reviews the events that led to the meltdown of Reactor 4 on April 26, 1986, in Chernobyl, Ukraine. Before he details the events that caused the explosion, he states that psychological factors, not mechanical factors, were what caused the event. He goes into quite a bit of detail about the chain of events that led to the meltdown, although he does say he is just providing an overview. I, personally, only have a surface-level knowledge of the Chernobyl event, so everything I read in the text was new to me. For the purposes of our review, I won't be going into any detail about the meltdown. I will just focus on the details about human behavior and decision-making. What he describes over the next several pages is the human tendency to overcorrect, or oversteer, as he puts it. The tendency to regulate the situation and not the process. He tells us that this tendency to overcorrect is characteristic of human interaction with dynamic systems. The result is instead of steering the system towards our desired goal, we overcorrect and carry it beyond our desired goal. We will be revisiting this concept in future talks. As he continues to break down the reactor meltdown, he explains that part of what happened was a disconnect between the demands of Moscow, the expectations of people in Kiev, and the workers in Chernobyl. The disconnect lies in the theoretical knowledge of the people in Moscow, who wanted certain tests completed and the pressure to keep power to Kiev. A couple of interesting points follow. One is the obvious, but often overlooked statement, that theoretical knowledge is not the same thing as hands-on knowledge. The other interesting point has to do with safety rules. Dorner explains that learning theory tells us that breaking safety rules is usually reinforced, meaning that it pays off, leaving the worker to act more freely. I'll quote from the text on this point. He says, Safety rules are usually devised in such a way that a violator will not be instantly blown sky-high, injured, or harmed in any other way, but will instead find that his life is made easier. The positive consequences of violating safety rules reinforce our tendency to violate them, so the likelihood of a disaster increases. From here, Dorner goes into more detail about the events that led to the explosion, and he goes on to explain that the psychology in this and similar situations is a tendency under time pressure to apply overdoses of established measures. This leads to an inability to properly assess the side effects and repercussions of one's behavior. Quoting again from the text, he tells us, We find an inadequate understanding of exponential development and an inability to see that a process that develops exponentially will, once it has begun, race to its conclusion with incredible speed. These are all mistakes of cognition. End quote. This leads to some interesting comments on groupthink. He states that there is a tendency in a group of experts to reinforce one another's conviction that they are doing everything right. He explains that we tend to think of failure in narrow terms, such as someone falling asleep on the job, missing a signal that is critical or flipping a wrong switch. Nothing like that happened at Chernobyl. The team working on the reactor was an expert, award-winning team with a good track record. He emphasizes that while the team did ignore the safety rules, they did not neglect anything or do anything accidentally. 
Everything they did that night had been done before, not just all at once and in that specific order. Quoting from the text, he says, They were of the opinion that the safety rules were designed much too narrowly for an experienced team. End quote. The author tells us that the behavior of the Chernobyl operators mirrors traits he observed in his Tanaland and Greenville experiments. Difficulties in managing time, difficulties in evaluating developing processes, and an over-reliance on thinking of things in a cause-and-effect relationship, as opposed to assessing side effects and long-term consequences. He concludes that the operators of the Chernobyl reactor, a first-rate, award-winning team up until the disaster, would have made what he calls utterly normal participants in either of his experiments. This concludes today's episode of The Literate Caveman, a review of Chapter 1 of The Logic of Failure. Next week, we will continue our review of this fascinating book. Thank you for listening, and go read a book.